All right, good morning. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're continuing in our series from the life of David. I'm going to read the first three verses here. And it says that it came about when the king lived in his house, referring to King David, the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. The title of my message this morning is When God says no, and we're going to be looking at this passage from this chapter. Let me just open with a quick word of prayer. Father, we bless you for your presence. We thank you that you give us life. You give us life, God, through your spirit. You give us life through community, and you give us life, God, through your word. And so this morning, God, let it flow from your throne to our hearts. Open up our minds. Open up our spirits, God, to receive from you. We commit this time to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to set the stage and as a setup for this chapter that we're going to be going through, I want to connect it to a verse that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. And there is when uh, he taught the disciples to pray, and he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, pray this phrase. And with regard to prayer, there are five possible outcomes when we look to God. The first is that God says yes, as in, I will multiply the bread and feed the 5,000. Another response could be no, as in when the Father said to Jesus, this cup will not pass from you. A third response, the Lord may say later, as he says in John 16, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. A fourth reply could be a sometimes as in the cases of healing. Paul said to Timothy, I left Trophimus, one of their workers, sick at Miletus. We know that Paul was gifted with the gift of healing, but not every single person that he prayed for was healed. So Trophimus was left sick at Miletus. A fifth way in which God can reply to us is to modify a yes or no response. In the case of no, I'm thinking about Paul when he wanted to go into Bithynia to plant churches in that region, but God said, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. And then we got the great Macedonian vision in Acts 16. Or he may modify a yes response. In Genesis 19, it talked about how Lot was fleeing from Sodom, and the angel said, I want you to flee to the hills. I want you to flee and escape to the mountains because the fire and brimstone is going to come down. It's going to be very intense and you need to be in a high place. And Lot says to the angel, because he was not in good shape, said, oh, I can't go that far. Let me just go to the nearby town. And the angel said to him, yes, you can do that. So these are five different outcomes that can happen when we pray to God. And of these five possible answers to prayer, we tend to think that only when God answers in the positive that that's God's will. We think, okay, four of these are good because God is saying yes in some form. If he says later, that means God's will will manifest later. If he says sometimes, that means God is giving me a yes answer, but in his sovereignty, not every time. If he modifies a yes or no, that means there's a better way to think about it. Here's how I want to adjust your thinking. 
And of course, yes means yes, as in ask, and you will receive, knock, and it will be open to you, seek, and you will find. So that's great, right? It's very clear. But regarding the no answer, we tend to think, I guess that's not God's will. He told me no. But that's the wrong way to think about it. We need to realize a no is as much heaven on earth as the other outcomes. No to a job offer may mean God is protecting us from a bad workplace. No may mean that God is keeping us from marrying the wrong person. No may mean that the timing is off, not now. No may mean your request is coming from a wrong motive. There are a myriad of reasons that God may say no, but in each case, it's also God's will on earth. He doesn't want sin to grow. He doesn't want evil to spread. He doesn't want crime to rise, abuse to increase, racism to take hold. His no to each of these situations reflect heaven on earth because none of these things are happening in heaven. So don't take no as a disappointment, as natural as that is, and as much as we want God to fulfill our request. Rather, God's no is his love at work, to work all things together for your good and his glory. He, might, he may not tell us why behind his no, but because he's not obligated to. But when we get to heaven, God just may show us what was behind his no reply, how he kept us on track or routed us to something better or shielded us from some harm, how they were actually blessings in disguise and how glad we will be that God said no to us. So a no from God is as powerful as a yes. And a no from God is as much heaven on earth as the other outcomes. So with that as our background, we come to this request that David had to build the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now let's just recall the, the events leading up to this chapter. He has brought the ark into Jerusalem, it's a momentous occasion. And as I said last week, this is a mind-blowing event. How in the world did David dare to keep the ark separated from the tabernacle? Now, I won't go through the, the maps and the charts that I showed you last week. I just want to summarize, and I've purposely grayed out the background so you don't get overwhelmed by the details there. But in the upper right-hand corner, you see that the ark and the tabernacle were unified. When Joshua brought the nation of Israel into the promised land, the ark was inside the tabernacle and they were unified. 350 years of history go by and we are now here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and unfortunately the ark and the tabernacle are separated one from another. It's like twins being separated at birth. And what we see is that the tabernacle, the actual structure surrounding the ark, is found in a city called Gibeon. And David now has moved the ark from this other town called Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. So the ark and the tabernacle are separated one from another. Now you could say, okay, David is now the king of a united country. He had authority to make things right and restore the priestly pattern. Why didn't he restore the ark back to where the tabernacle was? Had David made a big deal of bringing the ark back to Gibeon, we would have gotten and said, yeah, that's exactly right. You should reunite the, reunite the two. But that's not what David did. 
Instead of reuniting the ark with the tabernacle, he moved it to Jerusalem as a standalone piece. This was crazy. The people would not know how to act in front of the ark. There wasn't a brass altar. There wasn't a bronze laver. There was no animal sacrifices. Wouldn't it be irreverent to approach God in this way? Instead, it was just the ark under the tent. And so in this next slide, I show you the contrast between Moses' tabernacle and David's tent. And there are some very, very key differences. Number one, when you look at the Moses' tabernacle, it's only one person that can go in before the ark. But under, under David's tent, everyone can approach the ark. So this is a huge, huge difference. The second thing is that you see with Moses' tabernacle, there are many animals, there's many rituals before you can approach the ark. But with David's tents, there are no animals. There are no implements and instruments of sacrifice. So what is going on here? And the other thing I mentioned is that in Moses' tabernacle, there is no worship department. There is no harp, there's no string instruments, there's no timbrels. There is nothing. It's just solemn. But in David's tent, there is tons of music. So what was David's revelation that allowed him to bring the ark to Jerusalem dislocated from the tabernacle? It was this. It was the prophetic understanding that grace was on its way. That the many sacrifices would be replaced by the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus himself. The one high priest would be replaced by a priestly nation, you and me. As Peter says, we're a holy nation, a priestly nation. And that the reverent silence would be replaced by jubilation and song. That's why David so offended Michael, his wife, because he was dancing, but he was portraying and he was modeling a new prophetic era, a new era of grace that was coming on the earth. This was a brand new paradigm. In fact, this, this very phrase, this very thought, this event is referred to as a doctrine in Acts 15, 16. The tabernacle of David was understood by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem that this was the key to global evangelism. So this was not just some relic in the Old Testament. No, God is bringing the truth from the Old Testament right into the New Testament and connecting it to the Great Commission. And so when the apostles are trying to figure out, okay, for people to get saved in specific Gentiles who don't have our Hebrew tradition, do they need to be circumcised? And as the elders and the apostles convene in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem conference, they remember David's tabernacle. And they refer to it in Acts 15. The Pharisees and Sadducees tried to keep works in place. In other words, they said, in order to be saved... <clears throat> you still have to be circumcised. But that would have meant that the tent of David had fallen down. Works would have been exalted over grace. And if works had supremacy over grace, that would have, dis that would have been to disregard and desecrate the work of the cross. Thankfully, the apostles, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, understood that the gospel had to be about the tent of David. Jesus said the gospel would be for all nations, all people. Thus, the tent of David had to be lifted up in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. So David wasn't doing something irreverent by bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Rather, he was advancing the truth of God in the earth. 
He might have been dancing in the streets, but he was actually riding a tidal wave of revelation. So, it's easy to understand David's desire. Here the ark is in Jerusalem, and he says to himself, I need to build something magnificent for God's ark, something glorious and majestic. The ark can't sit alone under a humble tent while I'm living in a palace. That's just not right. And so as I read at the beginning there in verse 2, he says, the ark remains under the tent, but I live under a house of cedar. So he goes to the prophet Nathan to share his heart and to get a readout. And Nathan says, go, do let's all in your mind for the Lord is with you. So the initial response is, yes, David, go for it. It's all good. But later that night, God overrules through a prophetic word from Nathan. And these are the verses in, um, from 4 to 17. So you can follow along in the narrative there as I summarize for us what happened. So God intervenes and says to David, no, you cannot build a house for me. All these years I've been traveling under temporary shelter. I've never asked my people to build a place for me. That also shows you how humble God is, right? People who are self-entitled, people who think they're so important, they want an entourage, they want magnificent edifices in their name. God didn't want any of that. That shows you how humble he is and how Jesus also manifested that. That's why Christmas, when we celebrate Jesus born in the manger, it's so consistent with who God is and it makes him so accessible to you and me and every person in every corner of the earth. God said to David, never have I said, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Instead, and he reverses the situation, says, I'm going to build a house for you. And it's going to be an everlasting kingdom, and it's going to occur through your own offspring, and it's going to be an eternal kingship that you will have. Well, when you study over in Matthew, the genealogy, have you ever wondered why the Bible took the time, the authors of these different books took the time to write down the genealogy when it's so boring and it's like, oh my goodness. It's interesting to me now that we've got all these DNA tests out that we can trace our ancestry. So there's something very important and very strategic about these genealogies. Well, in Matthew, when you trace the genealogy of David, you can see directly 28 generations over 1,000 years, Jesus came directly from David in fulfillment of God's promise to David that his kingship would never end because Jesus is now our eternal king. So God stops David from building the temple through this prophecy by Nathan, but the primary reason why God said no isn't revealed until later. He just tells him to stop, but the reason isn't given until later. And it wasn't until David was getting ready to pass on his throne to his son Solomon that the Bible tells us the core reason. And it's over in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. David called for his son Solomon and commanded him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David's health is declining. His years are coming to an end. He's fulfilling his assignment in the Lord. And now the succession plans are being put into play. So David calls Solomon among his many sons because he's going to be the heir, and he begins to speak to him these instructions. 
So verse 7, David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house for me to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. So we see here the core reason why God denied David's request. God said, for his will to be seen on earth as it is in heaven, a man of peace, not a man of war, had to build the tabernacle. God was saying, I don't want the nations to think that my kingdom was established by conquest, that my rule and reign came through violence or by the strength of man's arm. No, my kingdom must be established through peace. And all the more, since this would be a permanent monument to the ark. In other words, God was saying, listen, the tabernacle that you have set up is awesome. Yes, it's to be a house of praise and worship. Yes, it's to be a house of God's glory and presence. Yes, it would be a house for all nations. You know, if King David were here today and took in our modern-day worship, Bethel, Elevation, Maverick City, back in those days, which some of you guys weren't even born, it was Hosanna, Maranatha, Vineyard. David would be so excited. That would be his legacy. The way we worship now is a legacy from David himself, a house of worship, a house of glory, a house of his presence, because it stirs the people of God to connect with him. And yes, David's tent was awesome because it prophesied of the coming grace and the new covenant. But for it to be perfect, the final aspect of God's house had to be just right and it had to mirror peace. The temple had to be built by a man of peace. Does anyone know the meaning of Solomon's name? It means peace. And it had to be built in a city of peace. Does anyone know the meaning of Jerusalem? City of peace. This tells you how much God values peace. It's one of the most precious commodities that we have in human life. We're constantly striving, constantly contending to get into a place of peace. We're always fighting stress. We're always fighting anxiety. We're always fighting just mental difficulties. And peace is such a precious commodity. And it's something that we value because we're part of God's creation. And it's in his heart. And he wants to give us peace that passes all understanding. This is why the Bible says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. This is why the Bible declares that Christmas is about peace to all men. All the violence in the earth that we're currently seeing, from political riots to racial attacks to sexual assaults, headlines just came out this week about just the incredible negative environment in the Canadian military, whether it's ethnic cleansing or genocide in China, this all deeply grieves God. It may just pass over when we read it on our news feed, but it grieves God deeply. The number one reason why God brought the first global judgment, the flood, is because of violence. Genesis 6 said that violence had filled the earth. Man had better watch out in this hour for his violence because it will invite swift and fierce judgment 
from God, whether you're a Christian or not. God is the God of peace. Jesus did not raise a sword. He didn't mobilize an army. He didn't cry out in the street. Violence is not God's way. It's not his pattern. Peace is. And therefore, it had to be reflected in this house that David wanted to build. David, great desire, but no, you can't build it because you've been a man of war. I need a man of peace to build this. So while David had to work through the disappointment of not being allowed to build the temple, of being denied permission to properly host and exalt God in his ark, yet we are going to see a model response from David to God's no. And this is given to us in the second part or the second half of chapter 7. So let's walk through these points here. The first is that when God says no to us, we humbly agree with his reply. Verse 18 says, David went in and sat before the Lord. No raised fists, no temper tantrums, just sitting at God's feet in humility. Doesn't mean he was sad, doesn't mean he was disappointed, but none of this kind of histronics that we see so frequently when we don't get our way. We've got Karens out there and we've got people out there throwing all these tantrums around their masks or vaccines or whatever it is. It's really childish. Thankfully, David didn't do this when God said no to him. You know, God's no have a way of shaping and training our souls. That's why we have to discipline our children. A no to them is a way of training them, of, of shaping their souls. You can't say yes to everything. That's just foolishness running rampant. And so God is a parent to us, just like we are to our children. We have to train them by saying no to them. Paul appealed to God three times that the thorn in his flesh would be taken away. I mean, Paul is the most godly man, most knowledgeable man. He's one of the most Christ-like men walking the face of the earth. And so he's appealing to God. And you think that God is listening to him? Absolutely. You think that God is going to answer his prayer? Absolutely. But when it came to this thorn in the flesh, the Bible says he sought the Lord three times and God said no. And what did Paul learn from that no? That to abide in weakness is glory unto God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, All the more I will boast about my weaknesses that the power of God may dwell in me. That is a broken, humble man. Not brokenhearted, but his spirit is so supple, so tender in the heart of God. Okay, if this is going to bring you more glory, if more power is going to flow through me, all the more I will embrace my weaknesses. God's no shapes us to become more like Jesus. It's not just heaven coming to earth. It's heaven coming to our soul to mold our character. We see then in verse 21 a second point regarding the proper response to God's no. We recite and affirm our core values once again that it's all about God's will. Verse 21 it says, David is saying, for the sake of your word and according to your will. That's why I started out the message with Matthew 6.10. 
What did God say about David? What's the famous line that describes who David is? He's a man after God's heart who will do all my will. So while David was saying no, while God was saying no to David, he did give David a pretty massive consolation prize. Okay? God has denied him. David is saying, it's okay. What I'm supremely passionate about is the will of God. But in the midst of that, God gives him this modification. He gives him this consolation prize in that he promised David that his throne would never come to an end. And instead of David building a house for God, God would build a house for him. So that was a pretty nice change of plans for David. But nevertheless, David goes back to what makes him tick, to what makes him glad, to the reason why he has meaning in life. It's all about God's will. Now, I believe that God gave him this, whether God gave him this consolation prize or not, David would have said the same thing. It's about you. It's about your will, O Lord. So when these things come to us, we need to go back to our core. We need to go back to our core values and recite to ourselves, confess to ourselves, it's all about you, God. Third thing that we see here in verse 22 is that we need to continue to praise God whether his answer fits our desire or not. In verse 22, David says, How great you are, sovereign Lord. There was, there was no one like you, and there was no one but you. There is no God but you. Do we praise God only when we get what we want? Or do we praise God no matter the circumstances, the situation, or the reply? Can we confess, it is well with my soul, no matter what trials we are going through? Hebrews 13, 15 talks about bringing a sacrifice of praise. And that's a real test to our faith. You know, in that situation, bringing a sacrifice of an animal just might be easier because it's just an outward act. Just get through it. But a sacrifice of praise means that our inward disposition, in our attitude, we're actually worshiping God. God cares about the heart, not the external. Over and over again, God upbraided the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were experts at external compliance to God's law, but their heart was far, far away from Him. Therefore, God condemned them because God doesn't care about the external he doesn't care if you dress like a Christian, smell like a Christian, look like a Christian. He wants you to be an actual Christian, to actually have Jesus in your heart. And so to bring a sacrifice of praise, you know what? That's new covenant stuff. Who says this new covenant stuff is easy? Give me the tabernacle of Moses where I can just sacrifice an animal and get it over with. But that's not what David did. He continued to praise God. In fact, that word continue is a key part of the verse in Hebrews 13. We don't just bring a sacrifice of praise once in a while. We're to offer a continual sacrifice of praise. There have been many moments in these last 14 months of the pandemic where I've been feeling very blue. I felt very down, even depressed. There are times where I comfort myself and say, you know what, I just want to throw it all away. Just, just leave the ministry. It's gotten that bad at different times. 
These are private thoughts that go through my heart. This is not fun. I don't know if it's because of my age or whatever it is, or it's warfare, but I have these feelings. But how do I battle out of them? How do I come out of them? How do I lift myself out of the trough of those emotions? You go back to praise. Say, God, you are sovereign. You're working in my life. I'm faithful to the things that you've put in front of me, and I need to continue on. No matter what my mood is, no matter what emotions are churned up on the inside, I will praise my God. That's the sacrifice of praise. David was not a fair-weather worshiper. He worshiped God no matter the season, no matter the situation, no matter the reply. Then in verse 25, we see something very interesting. David says, in light of the fact that God is going to build him a house, he says, Lord God, the word that you have spoken about your servant and this house, confirm it forever and do just as you have spoken. I think that's pretty bold to say, okay, God, you've given me this promise. Watch over it and confirm it forever. So if God comes and he brings some kind of modification or adjustment to us, we can boldly agree with what God says. And where does David get that boldness? Where does he get the right to feel that kind of bold reply back to God? Well, in verse 26 and in verse 27, it gives us a little two-part insight. The reason why God can pray this, confirm your word forever and do as you have spoken, is because his heart is about the glory of the Lord. Verse 26, it says, so that your name may be great forever. Don't do it just because I'm going to be able to say, oh my gosh, look at my sons and my son's sons and my son's 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 sons and how great they are. No, this is not just about the personal pleasure that I'm going to gain. If this is going to bring you glory, if this is going to make you look great, confirm your word forever and do just as you have spoken. And then in verse 27, Because it is God's word. Lord, this is not something that I'm making up. It's not my own dream. It's not my own thoughts. You have spoken this word to me. I didn't speak this word to you. Therefore, confirm it. God of Israel, you've given a revelation to your servant. In other words, I'm going to put my full confidence that when you speak something, you are good to what you speak. The Bible says that God is not a liar but that he fulfills every word that is spoken. So in this response, we see that David had the boldness to agree with any adjustments, any modifications that God brought. So in in these few verses, we have this very simple, very powerful way that teaches us how to respond to the Lord when he says no. It's practical and it's instructive. We humbly agree with God. We recite our core values once again, and we continue to praise him whether it fits our desire or not. So I'd like for the worship team to come on up. I'm going to close this in prayer here. Father, we just see how David's life 
is reflected through so many different situations. And even though you exalted him to the highest place, you still watched over him as a son. And there were specific times when you said no to him. But rather than pushing back, God, to your guidance, we see how David received the way that you led him. And we are thankful, God, for your no's this morning. Your no is your sovereignty at work. Your no is your goodness at work. It's your wisdom at work. It's your destiny working in our lives. And Father, we can trust in that. This morning, if you've been working through some disappointment where you felt like God denied you or he said no to you, just give that and surrender that to Jesus. Like David, look up and say, God, you are a good God. I continue to worship you. I sit at your feet. I bring a sacrifice of praise. I may not know on this side of heaven why you've guided me this way, but I trust you fully. My heart is to do your will, is to be a person after your heart, and therefore I can come into rest and I can come into peace. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. Build us up on the inside to have that full confidence. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen.